Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at WhitRiverside. Okay, so we're going to continue with our Simply Jesus series today. And last week we looked at the whole cultural historical context of, of, of where Jesus found himself. We looked at these, the storm analogy that was surrounding Jesus in person, the, uh, the might of the Roman Empire that was dominating the known earth at that time. And also we looked at the, the storm of the Israelite hope and expectation for a Messiah. Someone was going to come and set them free. Someone was going to come and free them from their oppression and bring in all the hope uh, that they had in their Messiah. And we also spoke about this third element, the divine wind of God, the unexpected wind of God, arriving in the form of Jesus, who was coming and declaring that the kingdom had come. The kingdom was near. God's... When we talk about kingdom, you have to understand that it's not like... Um, the, the way kingdom is described in your Bibles, it means... Uh, it's basilia. It's, it's a Greek word that means to rule and reign. So it means literally where God gets to have his way. Okay? So God doesn't get to have his way on the whole earth at the moment. Have you noticed that? Why is that then? Because of us, basically. Yeah, he's let us have a degree of free will. And so the only place in the universe where God doesn't get to have his free will and complete authority, rule and reign, is here at the moment, in this time, in between the kingdoms, in between when Christ came to the earth, went to the cross, and we wait for his coming return. So when Christ came and inaugurated the kingdom, when he launched the kingdom, he went around saying, the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is a little slice of heaven came down at that place, and the kingdom was revealed. And so the divine wind of God's kingdom was coming in the person of Jesus, confronting the Roman authorities, the civic power, and confronting the, the um, spiritual powers as well, because there was demonic power present not only in the Roman Empire, but also in the religious empire. There was demonic power present in both. And Jesus came to confront the power behind the powers, if you like. He came to confront the enemy and to bring in the kingdom. And he used the analogy of, of a strong man having a, a house. And he said, you can't plunder the house of a strong man unless you first tie up the strong man, and then you can plunder his house. And so he used the analogy to describe Satan and what Satan was doing on the earth at the time. He said, basically, I'm going to tie Satan up, and I'm going to plunder his house. I'm going to basically get back what's rightfully God's. And that was the analogy he used to describe the, the kingdom extending through his presence. And so... He was bringing in a whole new paradigm, a whole new understanding of God's kingdom coming upon the earth. And this was so much bigger than the Roman dream or even the Jewish dream of what they expected to happen. It was a much greater reality because this was going to be a kingdom that expanded over the whole earth. In fact, through the whole universe, God's kingdom was coming. Not just for the Middle East, not just for the Jewish people, but this would spread over the whole face of the earth. It says in Revelation 12, 10, it says, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. And this is visionary speak to describe what is happening all over the face of the earth. Salvation and power and kingdom are coming in the form of the Messiah. But many couldn't see it and many wouldn't receive it because they were fixed in terms of their paradigm, their glasses that we used last week to describe the lenses they viewed the earth through, they were fixed in their thinking. 
And I want us to pray. Um, we're going to look at um, John chapter 9 today and the healing of the blind man. But I want us to pray before we do that, that the eyes of our hearts will be opened. Because we've all come with our glasses again this morning. Some of you are wearing them, some of you aren't. But we all have our paradigm glasses, the way we see the world, the way we see church, the way we see Jesus. And we, again, we want to say, Holy Spirit, would you come and grant us revelation? So I'm going to pray the prayer that Paul prayed to the, for the church Ephesus. And he prayed this. Lord, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Amen. So Lord, would you open the eyes of our heart this morning? So we're going to look at John chapter 9. If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn there. I'm not going to put the words on the screen this morning. This story is all about sight and seeing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic story in itself, but also it's a symbolic story about the kingdom and how things are changing in terms of how we see. And Amy's going to come and read John chapter 9, 1 to 41. It's a big section of scripture, so you might just want to close your eyes and listen to the richness of the story as she reads it. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples questioned him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from saliva and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed and came back seeing. His neighbours and those who formerly had seen him as a beggar said, Isn't this the man who sat begging? Some of them said, He's the one. No, others were saying, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. Therefore they asked him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, Go to Siloam. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. So again, the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed and I can see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked him, Is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he see now? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he now sees and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether, he's not, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? 
I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to them. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied, and you are trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. When Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, he found him and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, Those who don't see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, We aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Thank you, Amy. So it's an incredible story. And on the face of it, just a story about a man receiving his sight. But you can, if you listen to the nuances in that story, you can hear the frustration of these paradigms meeting. The religious establishment trying to come to terms with this man, Jesus who was doing things differently, who was challenging their authority, who was actually upsetting their world. And this poor blind man in the middle of it all, who's received his sight, was hauled in front of them, and at the end of the story, he's accused of being the worst of sinners and being thrown out. And so you see this incredible paradigm clash taking place in this story. So to get some context for this story... um, Jesus had um, just come from... Well, he come from John chapter 8, actually. So he come from the previous <laughs> chapter. And uh, he's faced incredible opposition because the Pharisees have confronted him. And they've said to him, your power is from the demonic. You cast out demons by demons. So you're demonic. They accuse him of being a Samaritan. And Samaritan was a dirty word because it meant that you were a Jew who'd married interracially and you'd lost your purity. So Samaritan was a dirty word. You're a Samaritan, you're demonic. Uh, and they tried, to, um, they tried to catch him and stone him. They tried to kill him. Uh, And he slipped away. He slipped away from them and managed to escape. And he confronted them over their spiritual blindness. They just couldn't see what was happening in front of them because their paradigm was so fixed and so strong. And as Jesus comes from this incredibly stressful encounter, he's walking along and then they see this guy sitting by the side of the road or the path, uh, this blind man who's been reduced to begging, uh, because of his condition. And uh, this man must have been familiar to him because they know, he tells us in, this, in the passage, that they knew he was blind from birth. So he must have been somebody who was a regular, maybe that was his regular spot where he sat, and they may have passed him before. Have you ever judged anybody on first impressions? Okay, so you see somebody, you're out and about, you see somebody, they're dressed in a certain way, they look a certain way. And you immediately you judge them, don't you? You make a judgment in your heart about them or what they're like or their character or their condition. We do it all the time. We look on the outside, don't we? But Scripture tells us that God looks on the heart. So the disciples, they saw this blind beggar and they judge him. They make a judgment on him. And they say, Jesus, you know, who sinned, this guy 
or his parents because he's blind. And someone must, someone must have sinned because he's blind. Someone must have done something wrong somewhere. Uh, either it was him. He must have sinned pretty quickly because he was born blind from birth. So I'm not quite sure how he managed to sin. Anyway, um, so I didn't quite figure that one out. But So they said, did he sin or did his parents sin? Because where there's blame, there's a claim, isn't there? You know, someone is to blame, someone has done something wrong, and God has chosen to punish this guy by making him blind and reducing him to begging. And that was their thinking. They were trying to make sense of the world they lived in. They believed somewhere someone must have done something wrong, and this man's condition was a result of that. Perhaps his parents did something wrong, and he's picking up the consequences now. Perhaps somehow he managed to sin in the womb, and he's picking up the consequences now. But they were trying to make sense... Because to them, great suffering meant great sin. If someone was suffering, uh, then there must be sin. You've only got to look at the story of Job. And Job's friends rock up, don't they? Three friends come to comfort him. And after a while, they say, well, basically, Job, you're really a secret sinner, aren't you? That's the reason God's you know, smote your house and all your livestock's gone and your children have been killed and your wife's telling you to curse God and die. You know, the bottom line is, Job, you look great on the outside, but inside you must have some secret sin because God's punishing you for it. That was the worldview or the paradigm they were working with. So what they really want to know is, Jesus, give us the gossip on this guy. Who sinned? What did they do? What was the sin that reduced this guy to being born blind? But Jesus puts them straight very quickly. He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this has happened the work of God might be displayed in his life. So the man's blindness is not a result of his sin or his parents' sin. It's the result of him being part of a world that's broken. He's part of a broken, broken world. So the Jews, they believed that God was, God had created the world and they believed that God was still in charge. But when they looked around, they saw the world was broken. There was brokenness everywhere. Broken people, broken systems, broken homes. The world was broken. And they were struggling to reconcile a God who was all-powerful and in charge, but presiding over a broken, broken world. Everything needed fixing. Everything needed mending. Everything needed restoring. But Jesus says the issue isn't who sinned. The, the issue is the scale of sin, the scale of the problem that is being faced. Because it wasn't about whether the blind man sinned or the blind man's parents sinned. Jesus effectively saying everybody sinned. Everybody messed up. Everybody fell short of the glory of God. And the scale of the need is much greater than trying to figure out who sinned to result in this blind man's condition. And this was the bigger story. This was the bigger paradigm that Jesus was bringing in with the kingdom. It was much bigger than the illusion of security and peace that the Romans were offering with their thousand-year dream. It was much bigger than the geographical uh, hope that the Israelites had when the conquering king would come and deliver them from their oppressor. It was a much bigger dream, a much bigger story that Jesus was ushering in with the kingdom. Jesus was coming to set things right across the whole board, across the whole piece. Jesus was bringing in the kingdom to set things right. You know, when you're faced with suffering or hardship or things that you don't understand, the temptation is always to think, isn't it, why did God do this? Yeah, you ever ask yourself that question? Why, why did God do this? Why did God do this? But Jesus tells us through this story that God didn't do this. 
any more than he made the blind man blind. God didn't do it, but God would undo it. Because God is in the undoing business. God is in the restoring business. God is in the redeeming business. So God is the God who's in the process of undoing all the stuff that has gone wrong. He's in the process of undoing all the results of our bad choices, our rebellion, our independence. God is in the undoing business, in the restoring business. And that's what God would do through the story. Jesus is going to come and make all things new, as it says in Revelation. He would come and restore everything. And the blind man and Jesus had just converged. It was the old narrative and the new story meeting by the side of the road in the presence of that blind man's life. And heaven was about to touch earth in a very small way. I'm often amazed by, uh, by tornadoes, where you have this incredibly powerful funnel that comes down and touches the earth, doesn't it? Very destructive force in a tornado. But it was like over this blind man, it was like a tornado of God's presence had just been opened up over him. And heaven and earth would interact, would intersect. And the Jews believed that God came down into the temple. That's where God's presence was. He was in the temple. But Jesus was like a walking, talking temple. Wherever he went, God's presence went with him, was manifest. And so heaven would touch earth right there by the side of the road with Jesus and the blind man. Do you know you're a walking, talking temple as well? Nod. You are. It says in scripture, you have the spirit of God within you. You're like, a, you're like a living stone. So wherever you go, heaven and earth can interact in the same way. That tornado of God's kingdom, of God's presence, can touch the earth, and incredible things can happen in that place. So God was about to display his great redemptive work in the life of this man. He was about to undo something that had been done by being part of a broken system. And when we think about God this way, rather than thinking, well, why did God do this? Maybe when you're facing me, you could think about how can God's work be displayed through this? How can God manifest himself? That's the word in the Greek. How can God manifest himself in this situation? Because when you think that way, it changes your perspective. It changes your paradigm. You stop thinking about God as being unfair or cruel or distant or unkind. And you start thinking about God as being attentive and close and present and loving and caring and restoring. It changes the way that we see Because right here, in this interaction with the blind man, Jesus is modelling the heart of the Father. He's modelling the nature of the God that we worship. Remember that Jesus had just come from this incredibly intense confrontation with the Pharisees. He'd been publicly criticised and undermined. He'd been accused of being demonic in the method by which he, he was healing and demonstrating the kingdom. He'd been, his very identity of who he was had been attacked. He was being effectively called a second-class citizen. And they, he'd faced public threat. They wanted to catch him and stone him. And he'd come from this incredibly stressful situation. Jesus is fully human, yeah? He's not a robot, not an android. So imagine the, the, the adrenaline cursing through his veins as he makes his way out of that crowd that's determined to kill him. And a few moments later, he's walking along, probably catching his breath, trying to get his head together, and he sees a blind man by the side of the road. And what does he do? He he turns to him and has compassion on him. 
and looks to heal him. Now, if it was you or me, I'd probably be like, mate, I'm sorry, but I've had a tough one. You know, not now. You know, I've just, I'm just getting myself together. You know, they tried to stone me back there. I'm just trying to, you know, okay, that's fine. Maybe tomorrow, okay? That's what I would do. Anybody else? You know you would do that. You know you would because you'd be like, I'm sorry, but not now. I just haven't got anything to give. I haven't got anything to offer. I'm just, I'm just messed up. It's been so tough. These guys are accusing me of being demonic. I'm just trying to help them. But Jesus, he shows us the heart of the Father. The heart of the Father is, is to turn towards, is to be attentive, is to be gracious, is to go beyond, is to be loving and caring. He sees our needs. He responds to our needs. In contrast, the disciples show us the heart of man. They see the blind man and they judge him. They judge him in their hearts because based on his condition and his situation. So they see a blind man reduced to begging, I think, well, just a sinner. A sinner from a sinful family. And that's why he's got his just desserts. That's where he is, like he is. And not only judge him, they want to get the dirt on him. Jesus, tell us what, what he did. What's the sin? And we want a bit of gossip. You know, it says in your Bible that gossip is like a juicy morsel going down to the innermost parts. It's even better than McDonald's. Let's get some gossip on this man. Let's find out what he did. So they represent the heart of man. Jesus represents the heart of the Father. Because even though Jesus is absolutely at the end of himself, humanly speaking, he still wants to offer compassion. And what the disciples don't see, they don't see they're as broken and as blind as the man by the side of the road. Their condition is effectively just the same as his. Just the same as his. They're in need of healing and their sight to be restored exactly the same as he is. Because that's the condition of humanity. And in this story, the blind man, he symbolises something much more than just being a blind man by the side of the road. He symbolises the human condition. He symbolises the need that we all have for a saviour. The need that we all have to have our sight restored. The need that we all have for someone to stop and have compassion on us. Because every one of us is in as much darkness as that blind man was without Jesus' light and love in our lives. And Jesus gives them a very somber warning. He says this, he says, As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And the implication that Jesus is giving here is that there is kingdom opportunity given to you and I. When Carol shared that story of how she shared the gospel with that that lovely woman, that was a kingdom opportunity, wasn't it? That she took, a kingdom opportunity Darkness was coming, and there was a kingdom opportunity for that woman to be brought into the light. And that's an incredible story. And every day, you and I have kingdom opportunity. Jesus was talking about two things here. He was talking about the fact that he would be going to the cross, and he would be buried in the earth. And it would be a very dark time for his disciples. They would lose all sight of him. They would lose all perspective. They would be effectively scattered. But he would be resurrected. He would come back. But you and I, as Keith said, we don't know how much kingdom opportunity we've got, do we? I don't know when I'm going to die. You don't know when you're going to die. Every day is a gift that God gives us. And every day is full of kingdom opportunity. And the question is, are we going to take it? Are we going to take it? As Jesus said, while it's still light, you've got opportunity. While it's still light, you've got chance to be my hands and feet, to be my advocate, to be someone who can extend the love and grace of the kingdom.
And even though Jesus had every, every, every reason to say, sorry, mate, forget it. I'm just, I'm, I'm whacked. I'm out of here. He showed us the heart of the Father. And so next time, I want to encourage you, next time you, you've had a really, really bad day, perhaps you've been criticised, perhaps you've been judged, perhaps you've had people attacking your identity, perhaps you've had whatever, there could be a kingdom opportunity that day because when you offer to God something in that place, that's incredibly precious because you're modelling the heart of the Father, which is to go beyond, isn't it? It's to give love when no love is deserved. It's to be gracious when no grace is deserved. And so if we're going to be agents of the kingdom, we should always be looking for kingdom opportunity because it's all around us, all the time. And you are these little temples of the presence of God going around, letting heaven touch earth whenever you give God the chance to do that. See, whether it's convenient or not, the kingdom's advancing, yeah? <laughs> whether it fits your timetable or not, the kingdom's advancing. Whether you want it to or not, the kingdom is advancing. Okay? You are not going to be able to hold this thing back. This is the plan of God that is advancing across the whole face of the earth that Jesus began those 2,000 years ago. The kingdom is happening, the Father's at work, whether you feel like it, whether you want him to be. We, we, see, the thing about your story, guys, you can't spectate. You can't say, can you stop the ride, I want to get off. Because you're in it. You're in the story. You're in the narrative. You have a part to play. And so the kingdom is advancing, and we get to be a part of that kingdom advance. It says in Ephesians 5, Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And essentially, it means that we've got a chance here. We've got an opportunity here to, to battle for the king, to make advances for the king because dark days are around us. But it also says this everything that's illuminated, everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So, as soon as the light of God touches your life, you become a light. Yeah? As soon as you receive God's truth into your life, you become a light. You become a light that can go into the darkness. You carry that light, that kingdom presence, wherever you go. Everything that's illuminated becomes a light. And so we are these lights with kingdom opportunities that go around, touching people's lives, making the most incredible difference. And I'm going to pause there today. We're going to, we're going to do this as two parts now, okay? Is that right? So let's stand to our feet. We've got a few minutes left. Thank you for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.